Welcome back to Speaking of Startups. Today, we're excited to have Russell Kroger with us. Russell and I are going to spend a little bit of time today talking about equity compensation for early stage employees, a topic um, near and dear to Russell's heart and certainly something that I've dived into as well. So, Russell, let's have some fun today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Russell, as, as we've talked about in the past, we'd like to get started a little bit just so that folks understand who we're talking with. If you could you know, give us a little bit of background um, on who you are and, and maybe how you started the process of really kind of diving into stock options for early stage employees. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> so my background is uh, in financial planning, been a financial planner for a little over a decade found my way out to San Francisco, working at uh, a larger firm and ended up starting my own firm in San Francisco uh, in my mid to late 20s and quickly realized that the people, the younger people that I wanted to be working with, the most interesting, I guess, technical problems to help them solve were equity compensation related and the tax complexity that relates to it. It was kind of an inspiring niche to serve because it was people my age uh, kind of building the future, creating companies that were going to drastically change how people relate to work and life. And that was just a, a really interesting niche for me. And so I just kind of do- dove in um, and, and went as deep as I could to, to make sure that I was able to add value to these clients in a nuanced way and, and in a way that uh, generally wasn't addressed with traditional financial planning. So traditional financial planning, you know, as you and I both know from being in the industry, I got a little bit more time than you do, a little bit more gray than you do. Um, But traditional financial planning would circle back and say, it's best to deliver to those that are in their 50s and 60s, Um, right? Uh, We're talking about retirement planning, estate planning, um, and, you know, and the things that kind of come around at, at that point in time, how and why did you decide that young people in their you know twenties and thirties were a good place for you to be? Yeah. So I think maybe the first piece was I didn't grow up with a lot of economic resources. My family wouldn't have been basically accepted by any traditional financial planning firm. And so Fair enough. I never really I never really resonated with the idea of, of helping people with a couple million bucks get richer. I was more interested in helping people accumulate that wealth. And again, just being able to work with my peers, people who had similar worldviews and, and were doing similar things. Also in terms of like competitive advantage, I don't really think I was going to be able to compete to work with somebody who was 50 and had a couple million bucks. I would rather, you know, compete to work with somebody who's my age, whether or not they have a lot of uh, resources already. And I think the kind of what attracted me to the, to the startup piece and, and how that differentiated from traditional financial planning was the idea of helping people accumulate wealth and helping people make prudent decisions along the way versus waiting until they're 50, 60, have already made those decisions, um, right? Whether (laughs) good or optimized or kind of on that spectrum, right? Just kind of helping people avoid those those bad mistakes and uh, be more intentional with their resources. That just felt better to me and, and was more energizing. And if you're in San Francisco in the Bay Area working with 
young professionals, you know, you could choose to work with doctors or lawyers or, you know, consultants or right. Like any number of, of, uh, industries. But I think the, what made working with people in startups more interesting to me is how rapidly things changed. Not only, right. So if you kind of look at people between 25 and 45, they're going through a lot of life transitions, changing jobs, moving, having kids, you know, buying homes, those types of things. But on top of that, the job transitions are happening much more rapidly. Um, you know, you're not just trading salary for salary. If you were an attorney or a doctor, you're trading stock options. And, you know, if you leave your prior job, what does that mean? If you're starting a new job, what does that mean? And trying to connect the dots from, you know, one human capital bet and the economics of that to the next one. And how can you kind of transition across time and just the pivot culture with like all of those things were just very interesting to me. And when there's not a lot of certainty, like we were talking about traditional financial planning, if you're in your fifties or sixties, you're pretty focused on one particular future. That is how can I get to retirement age comfortably and quit my job and then spend my money until I die. <laughs> um, if you're not in that mindset, if you can't even see yourself or connect with yourself at, at 50, because you're in your early thirties, um, you know, at your startup, you don't know whether or not you're going to have a liquidity event over the next three to five years. Like that's just very different mindset, very different things to think through. Um, you know, it just, it, it goes beyond money to, to even like the personal side of things. And um, that I think was just that more complete picture of, of helping somebody navigate life was, was more appealing to me and fit my personality better. I mean, it's, it's interesting concept, right? Cause um, you know, the tools that financial planners have traditionally used, um, to go through the financial planning process are more or less targeted towards, towards those folks, right? I mean, retirement projection software, um, you call it financial planning software, but for most purposes, it's basically retirement planning software. Um, and even, you know, the traditional legacy, you know, tax planning software, that, you know, we'd look at like a BNA income tax planner, I guess is Bloomberg um, income tax planner now, um, or some of the other, you know, tools that are on the market. They're all kind of um, geared towards like BNA income tax planner is a current year snapshot, right? Like, and you can do modeling, but it's difficult to do, you know, good modeling. Um, and same thing with retirement planning software, right? Somebody in their thirties doesn't know what retirement looks like. Shoot, they don't know what two years look like as you from now look like as you just explained. So as you started to work with these founders, what did you how did you start to tackle some of these issues? Yeah, I think there's a fair amount of that was informed by my background in the financial life planning movement. I think right? Like you have to be a particular type of person to be a founder to join an early stage startup. And I think to the extent that you can connect with those people and, and try to like heighten those, uh, those superpowers or those quirks that, that draw them to those types of bets with their human capital, that amount of uncertainty, um, you know, the, the amount of ambition that you, you really have to have to take those risks and, and to see them through that just, that felt very, interesting and i obviously as a as an entrepreneur myself like i resonate deeply with those things and um i think just in general 
that mindset and approach and, and working with those types of people. Um, it's, it's a more practical way, I think, of, of giving financial advice. Like the value proposition, I think, is more tangible because when you think about traditional financial planning, the bulk of the value proposition is at least historically has been like articulated with investment management services. And if you have a sound investment philosophy, you really need 10 years to know whether or not that investment strategy was sound because anything within that is just kind of noise, like near-term volatility. And so there's not a lot of opportunity to tighten the feedback loops, or at least my observations of the industry, there weren't a lot of efforts to tighten those feedback loops. And you talked about taxes and tax planning, current year tax planning, um, but still like the entire orientation of the industry is around how much money are you going to have in the future and how can you effectively maximize the amount of resources that you're going to have, which is very different than somebody who's younger, especially somebody who's a founder or an early stage employee where the thing that's going to make them the most wealth isn't their salary, isn't saving into their 401k. It's whether or not the equity value in their company ends up being worth anything. Yeah. And some of that is within your control building. A lot of it isn't. And so it's, it's, again, just kind of helping people understand if you go down the, this path, if you spend X number of years applying your human capital to a specific company or a specific idea, um, you know, what does that mean for you? And how can you uh, make sure, especially if you're working at a startup and getting less comp than you could at, you know, a public company, what does that mean in seven years if you haven't had an exit? How far behind does that set you? Or if you do have an exit, like how close to never having to work again does that set you? And so those like those outcomes are way wider than with traditional financial planning um, because it's again it's these outcomes are somewhat binary. Like you either have an exit or or the, there's no exit at all. Yeah, oftentimes um, either um, is Babe Ruth either home run or strikeout, right? Yep. So. As you started diving in and working with, you know, early stage employees and the equity comp structures, right? I mean, we're talking about non-qualified stock options, um, uh, restricted stock, um, in some regards, incentive stock options. Like how, how difficult was it to take traditional measures um, and apply it to, you know, people in their late 20s, 30s, and in some regards, 40s as well? Um, what did... Um, what obstacles did you have to overcome to start to help those folks understand what they had, what it meant and what opportunities and challenges existed with it? I think it's very education heavy. Um, one thing that I think all of us experience is just how abstracted our money and finance system is from like applying our human capital, right? Like you, spend years developing skills. Hopefully those skills are valued and people offer you some sort of economics for providing those skills in the world and, and, and offering what you have to offer. Um, right. You get some sort of cash compensation that goes into the tax calculation, uh, whether or not you have any awareness of whether you are, have proper withholding, right? Like maybe you have a surprise tax bill, maybe you don't, but then, right. So like the cash compensation is, abstract and complex enough and trying to figure out how you earn money to then allocate those resources towards the future. That means like saving for the long term. 
That means managing your cash flows in the near term, but it also means having enough cash balances in in the near term to kind of provide for those like lump sum larger larger spending items. There's just not a lot of education um, around how to manage that stuff or how to understand or interpret if I make these decisions, if I spend X years of my life developing these skill sets, like, is this something that I can make a living doing? Um, and, and then kind of, again, like once you get that cash flow, like how are you utilizing that and what opportunities or paths does that unlock or, or kind of close down for you? That's not like, no, no, you can't go anywhere to learn that stuff. And so working with young people, it was a lot of coming up with frameworks or ways of communicating things that can help them uh, understand the implications of the decisions that they're making now while also connecting those decisions to their future self, right? So in five years or seven years or 15 years, like, who are you going to be with? Who's reliant upon you? What are you going to be doing? And it's not necessarily the, having a precise image of that future, but just trying to like get people to live in the future and then kind of maybe work backwards a little bit to develop a little bit more intuition for what's right for them. Um, it's again, not me as a financial planner saying you should make these life decisions and go down this path. It's if you make these decisions, these paths are more likely or less likely. Um, you can kind of tweak your behavior a little bit to increase the odds of a given future. Um, and it's really just kind of internalizing those things. And then you have to layer the equities compensation complexity on top of that, right? Like once you kind of understand cash flows and taxes and, and that type of thing, then you have to say like, okay, what is a stock option? Wait, you're saying I have to pay a certain price to buy this thing, but I can't actually sell it until some date in the future. It may not actually be worth anything. You know, if I'm paying less for it than it's worth, there's some tax impact. If it's a non-qualified stock option, it hits like the regular tax calculation if it's an incentive stock option, it goes under the alternative minimum tax calculation. Like all of this stuff is very complex. And, you know, as you know, like a lot of financial advisors struggle with this stuff as well. And if you have gone, you know, through years of schooling and gone through the CFP exam or the CPA exam and you still struggle with this stuff, just imagine people who haven't had those years of kind of indoctrination and and all of that, like trying to figure out and, and make informed choices. It just it's very unlikely that that people are are making smart choices, and so a lot of it is just trying to use uh, use these frameworks and and help people kind of understand these things so they can make informed choices about it. The way that I think I I kind of evaluate whether or not I'm my collaboration with somebody is successful is whether or not they can reason to me, um, right? Like kind of like reflect back the conversations that we've been having. And like use their own logic and reasoning to kind of walk through the flow chart. And then maybe I'm clarifying something that it was that they said. Um, but again, like as long as they are reasoning through the trade-offs in a way that um, they're going to, like when I'm not in the meeting with them on a Saturday night, when they're kind of thinking about the future, having a conversation with their with their spouse about what trade-offs are worthwhile, I want to make sure that, you know, when they're reasoning in their own time, it's as sound as when they're reasoning with me um, it is ultimately the goal. Yeah. So you just walked through um, AMT, um, regular tax, um, capital gains tax, um, vesting schedules, and, and all kinds of different components in there. And as you and I 
kind of talked about some in the past, right? These, these folks that early stage employees are heads down in their company, um, either, you know, um, focused on making a grow or focused on, you know, um, building up the technology so that it can grow or, or whatever it ends up being and understanding these abstract concepts and vesting schedules and taxes and current year taxes versus, you know, taxes two, three years down the road and how to maximize compensation while minimizing taxes and all of those things. Like how, how did you start to build, as you call it, that framework to help people understand what those options were for, um, from an illustrative perspective for, for them to start to make those maximizing type decisions? A lot of, a lot of repetitions, uh, have conversations with a lot of people. Um, back when I started doing this, like early 2017, there were not a lot of people with this, the specialty. Um, my business partner and I, uh, he was a couple years ahead of me. Um, he was a CPA first, so he had a more robust tax background than I did. And being able to collaborate with him was incredibly useful, uh, right. right? If you have somebody to bounce ideas off of and make sure like sanity check uh, your way of thinking, that's, that's really useful. So from a, a confidence in having conversations with people and not being concerned that you're going to say something that if they follow your guidance, you're going to blow them up. Like that's like yep. a, a really kind of like important hurdle to, to pass. Yep. Right. I think if you're, if you're trying to be a fiduciary, like you, you want to make sure that you're not going to, you know, mess, mess your client up. Um, and kind of like, that's like a minimum bar in my opinion. Um, and so like once I had gotten a, enough confidence and experience to, to really be, uh, go beyond that is just having lots of conversations with people really. And, and the frameworks kind of emerge. Um, I just kind of, that's what the way that my mind works anyway. And so uh, generally it would just be, you know, leading with questions, asking people things, um, asking people things a couple of different ways to see if their responses align. Um, and then kind of just really exploring that and making sure that, again, it comes back to that reasoning. Like I want to make sure that people, if they do have a perspective on something, that it's authentic and it's not coming out of a place of fear or a place of, um, you know, just like trying to copy what other people are doing or like status seeking. Cause like those things don't last. Um, it, it's, it's really trying to help make sure that people are moving forward in an authentic way. And, in, and in a way that when we do look back in seven or 10 years from now, like they will be proud and they, it's more of a regret minimization framework as, as much as it is, a maximization, right? Like the traditional financial planning is like, how can we maximize how much money you're going to have when you get to retirement so you can spend as much as you can during retirement? Whereas this is, you know, if you're a founder and early stage employee, and it, and that's just, that's what energizes you as being on a small team and willing this stuff into existence, you're going to be taking very different bets and making very different trade-offs than somebody who doesn't want to live that life. And so if me as an advisor, just kind of arbitrarily copying the way that traditional planning has been done. And, and that's my method of giving advice. I'm going to be giving advice that is not a good fit to the founder and startup clients. Um, and so it was just like kind of settling into that and, and owning that reality and then trying to come up with ways. And again, a lot of this was informed by the financial life planning type stuff, 
um, and just helping make sure that people are, are making decisions that align best with them. And I think maybe kind of counter to the maximization principles, like a lot of helping early stage employees and founders think about stuff is, it isn't as much of the maximization as it is the maybe like winning by not losing or avoiding go to zero risks and and making sure that if they do choose to own their company stock or are they they are taking uh, committing to a job where they're going to be earning below market salary for three to four to seven years hoping that you know the the company ends up growing and there is a liquidity event that they understand what that actually means because I think one of the worst things you could do is take a bet to join an early stage company and it goes well, but then you didn't actually map the economic implications that could have easily been anticipated uh, of like being at an early stage company. If you didn't map those to the life you're trying to live, like if you're trying to have a really expensive lifestyle or you need a large amount of money for a down payment on a house, or, you know, you're like, it can be very difficult to even to, to have kids, right? Like just trying to like juggle those things. Like if you're not clear on what you're trying to experience on the personal side of things, and you're also not honest about the implications of being part of an early stage company that can cause a lot of friction uh, with with those things not mapping well, which can end up decreasing the odds that the business is successful. Um, and, and this idea that like it could be pretty unfortunate to have started a business or participated early in a business that could have been successful had you have not like or had you been able to weather the storm on a like personal economic side of things? Uh, the idea that, you know, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Um, right. It just, it would be like almost one of the worst feelings in the world. If you could have done it, you could have willed this thing into existence, but you just hadn't prepared personally. Um, or, or maybe you hadn't anticipated personally those sacrifices and trade-offs you were going to make, which caused unnecessary frictions. Had you have just been, a little bit more realistic uh, about it early on. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a really good point. I mean, um, the, you know, the implications, you know, financial implications of making decisions are present for everybody. Um, and, you know, certainly it stands out in large parts with founders and early stage employees, just because, as you said, the the difference in success and no success can be so dramatic. Um, but one of the things that plays in so much, um, at least on the equity comp side, um, is like is the tax aspect of it, right? So, um, in trying to figure out how to create win-win scenarios from uh, allowing the the equity to do its thing, but not to do a thing that is overly penalizing on the um, on the tax side. So, you know, and that takes multi-year thinking, right? It, it takes understanding, you know, what the future could hold and, and then taking that and applying it into, you know, a two, three, four-year type tax schedule. Um, am I correct on that? Yeah, totally. I've, I've seen a number of instances where some, somebody ended up making decisions um, about exercising options, triggered a tax bill that wasn't anticipated. They didn't have cash on the sidelines to cover that tax bill. And then they 
that just put them in a hole financially, whether it was a re- repayment plan with the IRS or they you know, ended up paying the tax bill, but just accumulated a bunch of credit card debt for lifestyle expenses and stuff that they were going to be spending anyway. And then you think about like the rate on those credit cards and that the, you know, the balance is basically growing faster than you can end up paying it off. Um, right. You kind of get in those, uh, those cycles and you, you end up not being able to save your 401k or accumulate cash for that down payment on that house. And so it, those things are, are incredibly important. Um, and the ability to have foresight, um, right. Like it, it's almost like this idea that, um, you don't want to sell at a loss, right? If you, if you know, stock price is a hundred bucks and the value of the stock gets cut in half and you sell in a panic, it is going to require more than a 50% increase to get back to 100. Like you, you have to double your money, yep. right? Instead of, so it's like that idea, but with taxes, um, is, is apparent, right? It's, it can cause this cash flow hole that is very difficult to get out of the psychological aspect of that on the individual, the family, right? It just, it's kind of this ever present thing. Um, and, and because it is so complex, it's hard to feel confident that you've made the right strategy. So that kind of comes back to that regret minimization framework where it's possible through thoughtful planning and conversations to reason about an approach or a a decision with your company stock that if the company does end up going to zero is worth nothing, whatever money you've allocated to purchase your company stock doesn't end up undermining your future trajectory. Um, there's also a way to do it where the tax bill is anticipated and prepared for doesn't mean you don't incur tax. It just means you're doing it in a way that like maps and is contextualized to your financial circumstances um, and that you're able to kind of do so methodically from year over year and you're kind of connecting the dots. Um, and, and that again, it's it's kind of a more recent uh opportunity for people to be able to collaborate with financial advisors in this capacity because again like just the way that the world used to work the way that financial advice has traditionally worked younger people and people that are navigating this type of equity compensation complexity generally haven't been a target for financial advisors um and other than like the last handful of years um that that that's really happened so you've um in our past conversations um, you know, just going through stock options and the complexity uh, and how it applies back to early early stage employees or, or um, in some regards founders and whatnot. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of interplay between the different stock options and how you can leverage the different tax brackets, right? I mean, we you mentioned earlier, um, you know, the alternative minimum tax and you know, you know, most uh, most folks that you talk with probably never knew such a thing, right? I mean, back in the early two thousands, the AMT was a uh, was a constant planning struggle for folks, probably making just as much as two or two hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, but AMT, uh, from a stock option perspective, and how it impacts early stage employees is a is a really big deal. And and then, you know, coordinate that with non-qualified stock options or restricted stock or or the other things. How difficult is it to get early stage younger folks um, to to get up to speed 
on the tax code to help them start to formulate or get to a place where they can engage with you in a conversation so they can repeat back to you what you've said. Yeah. So I think it's maybe, hopefully they're not uh, going too deep into the tax code. <laughs> hopefully I can uh, kind of help communicate that. And again, these, these frameworks make it a little bit more tangible, but an example of that would end up being, uh, well, I mean, maybe there's, an example for somebody who's who's founding a company, like how do you help them reason about uh, right the the type of entity that they should create, uh, what the equity structure should look like, whether it's a solo founder, multiple founders, um, right? You can kind of help them kind of think to that next decision of well, once you have the founding team in place, whether you are bootstrapping or raising venture capital, you're going to likely want to have some equity incentive for the next tranche of hires. And so kind of how do you create that employee pool? How do you think about, again, bringing in those people who are, who are going to be going along the journey with you to, um, right, to incentivize them effectively? And whether you are the founder trying to reason about what equity should be available and how much, or if you're a potential early stage person joining a company, just trying to make sure that you understand where the founder's coming from. Um, you know, is this kind of like the standard structure? Uh, what does this mean to you? What does this mean if this is successful? What does it mean if it's not successful? And you can end up kind of creating frameworks for people. And, and really, you have to start from the personal finance side of things. So if somebody has already had an exit and they're founding a company, you can help them make sure they have enough cash on the sidelines that they're basically using that cash as their personal runway, the way you might think of a business having a runway, where you know you can continue to focus on the business, you don't need cash flow from the business, you can do that for X period of time and just focus on kind of manifesting this thing, um, getting proof of concepts in place to bring other people in, to bring investors in, kind of that entire building process. That's a little bit different maybe than an early stage employee uh, who's who's coming on. Maybe it's uh, you know, head of something, or maybe they're a founding engineer, founding designer, kind of what, whatever the, the situation is. And based on the equity available, whether it's restricted stock, founder stock, maybe some of that is left over um, from, from when the founders uh, created the company. Maybe they just uh, opened a new employee pool by issuing stock options. So the NSOs or, or the ISOs are available. And that's where you want to end up mapping it to that client situation. Um, so somebody who's joining an early stage company, the founder gives them a job offer, X amount of cash and, you know, some percent of the company and options, you know, does that person want, does that person joining the company want ISOs or NSOs? Like there's actually reasoning and frameworks you can apply to which one you would prefer and you can negotiate around those things to get what is most useful for the individual's personal financial situation. And then you can help that person reason about when would you, in what instances would you exercise this stock because you want to own it? Well, if it's early enough in the company's life, if there's no spread, if you're paying you know, the price of the stock, the exercise price is what it's worth, the 409A, and there's no spread, then there's no tax implications. And if you can afford to you know, early exercise the entire tranche without it negatively impacting your financial trajectory. If it goes to zero, then maybe you negotiate for all NSOs, early exercise provision, 
And then you ask the founders to like, you know, complete a, a, a questionnaire that basically says this stock does qualify for um, QSBS treatment or, or, or 1202, right? And so like those things you can kind of map together to put the strategy together, but maybe the stock price is, you know, if it's a stock option, maybe the stock price, it, it, it's a little bit later in the company. So the stock price is a couple bucks instead of a fraction of a cent or, yeah. you know, a couple of cents. And in that case, the person may not have the economics to early exercise and own all of their stock. And then you, that's where that multi-year analysis starts coming in. Cause then you help the client start reasoning well, like, okay, on any given year, if this is your cash flow, how much could you realistically, or how much, how much investment risk each year would you realistically take on? One is a function of how much can your cash flows allow, but then the other is if it ends up going to zero, how much can your personal financial situation allow? And so that's where the frameworks start coming into place. And so you're kind of, you're providing this, um, the, the stuff that's technically complex and somewhat abstract because of the finance and tax system, how all of this legalese works, you're hanging, hanging that complexity on scaffolding of that client's like personal life. And they know their personal life very well. They at least have some sense of their risk capacity and risk tolerance. You can educate them on those types of things. You can connect the dots between it. And then that's when they can start kind of repeating back to you of, okay, if I, you know, take this job or take this consulting gig or do this thing, like this is what it means to me from an economic perspective. The economics are going to be split between company stock and cash and, you know, some, some form of benefits possibly. Right. And then, so you're basically just trying to map that to the person's situation and understand like how long, if you really believe in this, if, if you believe in the company, if you believe in the founding team enough to commit your human capital, this for a couple of years, what are you going to do with the equity compensation portion such that if it is successful, you have a better tax uh, after tax exit, all else being equal, or if it goes to zero, it doesn't completely undermine your ability to live the rest of your life in a meaningful way. And that's kind of the, the boundaries that, that we're helping people navigate and, and understand the nuance of. So no, super interesting. So let's take a step back and think about the industry as it's it, as it's existed forever, which is a, we're going to take your portfolio of you know stocks and um, a brokerage account and an IRA and, and maybe a Roth IRA or a trust or whatever it ends up being. We're going to stick it into our, um, our custodian. We're going to tie into it. We're going to manage it and we're going to bill you a percent of assets. So as you're building this thing out in 2016, 2017, by and large, that was still the dominant way the industry operated and and functioned from a, a billing perspective and a, from a, a revenue income perspective. That you're talking about wealth that's tied up well outside of that traditional model. How how did you marry your business model with being able to effectively and efficiently serve that new style of client? Yeah, uh, Mike, my business partner, and I have kind of started as like a, a tongue-in-cheek uh, thing, but we, we were referring to ourselves as as venture capitalists for people, um, where we see ourselves almost like a, a pre-seed or seed stage investor would. You know, we're working with people before 
there's any evidence that there's going to be success or economic payout. And we just had to make sure that our, uh, our pricing model gave us some minimal, some minimum amount of uh, revenue for working with each of those clients, even though we were drastically underpaid before there was an exit. Once there was an exit, we would effectively be able to be adequately compensated uh, for the rest of our working relationship with those people. And when you think about traditional financial planning, I think part of the part of the reason that firms have to have minimums, like call it, you have like a three million dollar minimum, so and you're charging one percent, so that's thirty thousand dollars a year that you're billing somebody. Part of the reason why, well, there's a lot of reasons why that uh, that pricing model exists, but you also think about like the duration of the relationship. If you're working with somebody in their 50s and 60s, you know, in 20 years, they're statistically going to be dead and the money's going to be passed on to the next generation. And so those businesses are effectively like a depreciating asset where the bulk of their clients are spending from the portfolios. And so you have to have some minimum amount that you anticipate you're going to get to charge on, because if you're charging on AUM and those people are spending from the, those portfolios, your ability to earn revenue it, there's like a definitive date at which that's go likely going to stop unless you have a good relationship with the next generation, which I don't think is super common in our industry. Um, and so you you kind of like have this structure where you need a certain payoff, whereas my business partner and I, if we're working with somebody that's in their 30s, we're going to be working with this person for 50 years, 40 years, and we can you know go the next five to seven years getting underpaid if we really like that person and you know they they kind of match the the essence of of what we want our target client to be um and, and there's like that mutual respect in, in the relationship like we can take those bets um and so when we started doing that there were very few other companies that were you know writing those like seed stage checks into individuals and families giving them the advice that they needed kind of guiding them along the way such that they were going to be able to increase their odds of success, um, right? It's just a very different paradigm in terms of of how you choose to work with people um, and then what that value proposition looks like. Yeah, no. And, you know, from y'all's perspective, um, the value proposition was help these people create a lifestyle that you know, fit who they were and what they wanted to do and then take that lifestyle and map it on top of their quote unquote career decisions over the course of the next 20 or 30 years. Is that kind of how y'all started to build it out? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much exactly what that looks like. So, um, but to a certain extent, Russell, like, <laughs> um, you know, a fair number of people in their 20s and 30s don't know what the heck they're going to do for the next 20 or 30 years. Um, and I guess that's what you're, I mean, those are those early stage conversations that you're really diving into to understand and help them to a certain extent start to verbalize and visualize, hey, look, this is my life. How do I want to create it? Yep. Yeah, it's a lot about like, helping facilitate the self-discovery and self-actualization and you know we're not like you know quote-unquote life coaches or, or anything like that but there is a lot of that essence that that kind of comes out in the work that we do 
because we try to help our clients see around corners. We ask them questions about the future and the trade-offs that they're willing to make and experience. And I think if you if you ask people good questions, they become very clear on what is and is not worth pursuing, right? It's not my job to tell the client what's worth pursuing or what risks they can and can't take. It's here's the potential trade-offs, kind of if this goes in one direction or the other, are you okay with that? And if you're okay with that, this is kind of how we should be thinking about risk management decisions or, or these other pieces. And right to the extent that you end up having a win, you have a liquidity event, you basically like have this massive increase in uh, like this step function increase in, in economic positioning, then what are you going to do? Um, and I made the analogy to, you know, early stage investing uh, earlier, I think oftentimes, right, if, if an early stage investor writes a check into a founder's company, they're betting on the founder less than they're betting on the business. And if the business doesn't succeed, if the founder operated in a way where they're, again, like, you know, good faith and, and engage with the process in a way that that, that investor uh, respects, that investor is likely to invest in the next company that they do, uh, right? And it's like, again, like, that's kind of a very similar approach to if you're younger and in the startup ecosystem and you're looking for a financial planner to collaborate with, you want to be collaborating with the type of person that gets the risks that you're trying to take and can help you place as many bets like serially as you need to. And sometimes it'll be right early stage company that did or didn't work out, you know, uh, late stage company or, or public tech company, right? And you're kind of bouncing around, possibly oscillating, getting different experiences, plugging back into a better role or a higher role where you can get uh, higher cash compensation or a bigger percent equity of the company. And to be able to kind of think through those uh, career trade-offs and those human capital trade-offs and just continue to map that back to the personal finance side of things and the life that I, that that person wants to experience. And then the financial advisor is effectively just holding space for that person to figure out their stuff across time while ideally avoiding kind of the worst case outcomes um, and, and just being a thought partner and um, you know, like a co-conspirator, so to speak, with with what that person's trying to manifest. Completely understand. So, I mean, naturally, I always say this, we're coming up kind of on the end of time here. We've got um, five, six minutes um, to go. And with that, you've, I mean, we've, you've touched base on a lot of different things today, Russell. And I mean, it's clear you have clear for, for me today, as well as clear for me over the course of the last year that I've known you that your expertise on the technical side is really, really good. Um, the way that you've mapped out and created, you know, uh, you know, spreadsheets and whatnot to create that framework to show the tax impact of stock options and decision frameworks over multiple um, stock grants, as well as over multiple tax years, is is really at the top tier of um of the industry but you then you also then come into the picture with a softer side component as well and 
you talk about marrying those two to help founders achieve what they're looking for out of their career, out of their life, you know, going forward. How, how do, how do early stage employees look for and find that skill set and, and have confidence in the fact that the person can deliver in a similar type capacity as you? That is a good question that I'm honestly not 100% sure how to answer. Um, I mean, I would say first and foremost, uh, I'm not the best financial planner for most people. Um, you know, it's very much comes down to, to personality and and how people receive information and how they want to receive information. And so I think probably the best thing to do for somebody looking to collaborate with a financial advisor would be to kind of get a sense of that person's essence based on their online presence, if they have any online presence, um, and, and really just to try to figure it out. I mean, the way that when I started creating content in this space, my goal wasn't uh, kind of what I saw with other uh, other people who were doing a similar thing, the content that they would write, it would be something like, Hey, there's this complex thing that you're going to deal with AMT, for example, um, watch out. It can bite you in the butt, you know, click here to schedule a 15 minute consultation. But like the, the essay, the write up the blog post, it added no value. It was just like, here are some terms. Um, you know, you probably don't know how to think about this. So talk to me. Um, and, and the approach to writing content, that I took was I'm going to try to give as much useful information um, ideally in, in the structure of frameworks. So it's like tangible for people and they can take, take something away with it. And the idea that somebody could read what I wrote and be a DIY or implement it themselves, if, you know, if they're smart and care enough to, or they would read that and be like, that is absolutely the person that I have to talk to. Um, right. Because the way that they communicated things. And so I think that, to the extent that resonates with people, they would reach out and try to work with us to the extent that it didn't, they, they wouldn't. Right. And so I think it's just know what you want and how you want people to communicate with you and how, you know, you want to interact with a professional, um, and, and try to find the people that seem to give off that type of a vibe. Um, maybe some questions to ask yourself is like, you know, what experiences with, maybe, you, you know, you, maybe you don't have a tax preparer, you don't have a financial advisor and you never have. So it's, it's hard to know, but it's like, what experiences with what professionals have you left felt, feeling like this person gets me or this person added a lot of value, or I really enjoyed um, the way that that worked. It could even be a professor or somebody who mentored you. It's like, what is the way that they related to you and how did you learn best and how did you feel you know, most energized and, and supported in that experience. Um, and then trying to kind of find the people who have that essence in the way that they're, they do their work. And again, just ask a lot of, <laughs> a lot of questions to advisors when you're interviewing them and doing diligence. Um, some of it is on the technical side. Hopefully the technical expertise comes through in, in their content and all of that. Um, but I think it's as much of the personality fit and how they communicate to you than, than anything else. So, um, great point. Um, let's close with this. Some people would listen to our conversation today and say, we talked a lot about equity comp. Uh, 
and understanding to a certain extent the tax impact of SID tax of of SID equity compensation. And they'd listen to that and say, well, that's my CPA's job. Why don't I just leave it to my CPA? And in some regards, that's a good question. How do you, um, how do you respond to, I'll just hire a CPA instead? I think in many instances that could be sufficient. Um, the so the wealth management firm that I built, we do tax returns in the house for our clients because taxes and tax planning is such a integral part of uh, the the planning needs. Um, I think that oftentimes when we refer out a lot more people than than we take on um, as clients, and a lot of times, based on what somebody would communicate to us, we would tell them like you don't actually probably need a financial planner right now. Uh, you should just work with a highly skilled tax professional in this area. One of the downsides though is, and this is kind of maybe a little bit of inside baseball for people who don't have a lot of experience with the industry. Tax professionals, the way that tax firms are often set up is they're competing with TurboTax and H&R Block um, from a pricing perspective. And so a lot of firms, they end up being volume shops. So it really just comes down to how many returns can they do? And if you're prioritizing volume, you can't really be as in-depth or proactive, unfortunately. And equity compensation is very complex. And because of all of the changes that happen, uh, right, like many changes per year, uh, as we were talking about, uh, many changes across the years, you really want to be able to collaborate with somebody who has a finger on the pulse on an ongoing basis. And if if a tax professional hasn't set up their offering that way, um, that's not really going to be as advantageous. Generally, financial planners, especially the younger planners, the planners that have like a their own firm, independent, that are working with people in startups, they generally will be more proactive and be accessible on an ongoing basis, which is more useful. They just may not have the expertise or the tools to do the in-depth uh, in, in depth work. And so I would say to the extent possible, um, having your financial service professionals, uh, tightly collaborating would be the best thing. If it can be under the same roof, great. If not, that's fine as well. Uh, but ultimately you want to have people that either can do the like, kind of like full vertical, uh, calculations and analyses, or that one person in your, uh, kind of like think about it almost like a board of directors, right? It's like a board of directors with non-voting shares. They're not going to, you know, fire you from your own startup. They're not going to kick you out of your own life, but they'll kind of coordinate with others and, and chime in with their expertise and perspective to, um, to help you learn from the things that they've seen. And obviously if the, the board is fighting or they're not collaborating well, that's not really useful. Um, or if somebody's not really present and you know, that is, is not useful as well. Right. So it's just trying to construct the, the people, bring the people in, right. It's kind of similar to building an early team. Like who are the right people who are going to increase your odds of success? Um, and there are plenty of financial planners and, and tax professionals who can help you increase the odds of success based on your specific journey. What is you're trying to create and manifest? Um, there's also an equal number. Actually, there's probably even more people who would 
uh, not contribute to success and take you further away from it. Um, so a lot of it is just making sure that your uh, individuals are doing the, the research and the diligence to figure out, is this the type of person I want on my cap table? Is this the type of person that I want on my board of directors who is going to be helping me strategize about things? Because if you get the wrong advice, you know, your, your baby, the company that you founded or the company that you, you joined super early, like that can end up being a lot less successful. And right. I think there's analogies that you can map to your life, not turning out as anticipated because, you know, you made decisions that, that maybe were not uh, right for you. Yeah. No. So, I mean, it's a, you know, as you and I've talked about over the course of the last year, so um, it's a complex topic. Um, the stock options tying into a complex um, thing, which is life um, and figuring out the right way to leverage and maximize and, um, and, and utilize that is, is a, is a constant and ongoing process. Definitely. So Russell, it's been awesome to catch up with you and talk, um, talk about equity comp and kind of how early stage employees need to think about equity comp in, in a total picture. Right. So really enjoyed the opportunity to kind of hear you talk through your experience and how you got here, et cetera. So thanks for carving out the time with us this morning and look forward to seeing you continue to publish and write and help educate other professionals as well as, as, as young, um, young entrepreneurs and, and early stage employees try to figure out how to get this right. Awesome. Thanks, William. Um, so anyways, thanks again. The Citizen Owner of and an investment advisor representative of Portis Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.